morning comes from Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we'll go through verse 5. So, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So, in between Judges and 1 Samuel, where we'll find Ruth this morning as you're turning there. I want to ask this question. And this was a question that Annie and I were asked yesterday by a group from, uh, they called themselves from a church. Um, but the question is, where do you turn in times of trouble? Where do you turn in times of trouble? Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. And the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The beginning of Ruth on Mother's Day is a heavy message. We're going to be going through the four chapters that make up Ruth over the coming weeks. And this is where we find ourselves. It is a very stark beginning in this book. That's exactly for you mothers what you wanted to hear today, didn't you? Husband dies. Children die. There's no relief in this story of the sorrow that awaits Naomi. The suffering remains waiting. In fact, it isn't until chapter 2, so here in two weeks, where hope is restored. Ruth, just to intro a little bit about what the book of Ruth is about, it's a, a narrative. It's a story about redemption of hopeless situations. It's made up primarily of dialogue between characters. Over 50% of this book is going to be conversational between character to character. Aside from speculation, we don't know who wrote the book of Ruth. And we don't know when the book of Ruth was written. I sit and be like, oh. That shouldn't cause us to speculate or to be uh, negative on if we can trust Ruth. Because we know that if we hold it in our Bible, that the Holy Spirit has divinely inspired the writer to say exactly what he wants him to say. From the content of the book, the date seems most likely that it comes shortly after David's installation as king of Israel. Especially given where it ends in chapter 4, David will get there as we walk through this. But in our text this morning, we're going to see that suffering is very real. For a believer and a non-believer alike, Christians deal with with suffering. But in the midst of the suffering, we're not left hopeless. As this 
five verses concludes, you're kind of left on the cliff of hopelessness. But thankfully, Ruth doesn't end It continues, and we'll see the hope of God in the midst of hopelessness. We'll see through our time in Ruth that God is a God who keeps his promises. He will preserve the line of the Messiah, and he will use some unordinary means to do so. In this passage, we'll see this story unfold in two parts. We'll see it unfold in the setting, and we'll see it unfold in the suffering. The setting and the suffering. Every story that I'm aware of has some kind of contextual backdrop, some kind of setting that helps us understand what's going on here. For Ruth, the backdrop is very grim. It begins in the time of the judges. This is both a chronological as well as a theological reference that we should think what is going on in the time of the judges. I was asked just this week, why don't preachers preach more in the Old Testament? Because it takes a lot of unpacking for what's going on in the Old Testament. We have to go back sometimes 4,000 years to be able to see, okay, what's going on here? So Ruth historically is taking place in the time of the judges. The book of Judges, at the very end, this is what it tells us about the time of the judges. This is Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We might be able to look at even our current culture in 2019. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. There's no king in Israel. So it's in between the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the faith. But it's not yet the time of the kingdom of Israel. So we haven't seen the installation of Saul. This was a time wrought with outlaws. I'm from Oklahoma, so immediately I have to jump to outlaws, right? Wild West. But it was also a time of lawlessness in Israel. The book of Judges tells us that God continued to raise up judges for the people of Israel to be delivered from their enemies. Yet the reason that they were handed over to their enemies was because of their own sinfulness. If you think about kind of a cycle of what the Israelites were doing in the time of the judges, it goes similar to this. God raises up a judge to deliver the people. The people repent. Then the people disobey. And then God hands them back over to enemies. And then another judge comes and repeats over and over and over again. This is the time that we find ourselves in. But not only is lawlessness running rampant, there's no king. There's also, the text tells us, a famine in the land. As I was trying to wrap my mind around this, it's hard to think about a famine. Unless you're 100% reliant on the agriculture or on you know, means to provide food other than going to Kroger, it's hard to understand famine. And the first thing that came to my mind is when you get a bad snowstorm and, and you know, it's, it's like the apocalypse is coming and everybody goes and they try and find everything. But to the 
10,000th degree, this famine was withholding any food from the land. But what land is it talking about? Well, it says that Naomi and her family are from Bethlehem. It's interesting to note that Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. The house of bread is not producing anymore. It's no coincidence that he tells us this, this author. So we must ask ourselves, why is the house of bread not producing bread? Again, we may turn immediately to our knowledge of agriculture. We may think, well, maybe if they would have planted better seed, or maybe if they would have had a John Deere tractor instead of such and such tractor, it would have worked out okay. But this is not merely a practical reason for the famine. It's a theological reason for this famine. I remember being out on the farm, uh, our childhood farm, and my grandparents would take us to see the hay meadows. You know, there was a distinct difference between the farm and the hay meadows. The hay meadows weren't to be played in order to produce hay. You know, driving a truck in a hay meadow. And they would tell us that, you know, irrigation was put and they would have these different ridges so that the water would stay and that the hay would grow and then they would bale it, you know, cut it, bale it, and sell it. It was a means of provision for our family. But Agriculture 101 says if it doesn't rain, it doesn't matter what you do. So this practical turns theological in that our understanding of God is that he, as I preached the last time, is the creator of all things, and he also ordains all things. There is nothing that has ever happened in human history that God has not ordained, that he has not been in control over. In Leviticus 26, 16 through 20, this might be the reason that Bethlehem is not producing rain. God says, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Linking it to the sin of the people. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron. Again, heavens synonymous with rain, and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. And again, Deuteronomy 28, verse 23 and 24. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. If you pick up on this, the two writers, both Moses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they switch iron and bronze. You might want to speculate. Why would, why would he say that? Seems to be contradictory. I think the point is that your the rain is going to be hard, like iron or bronze. You'll get nothing. And your land will be like iron or bronze. It will produce nothing. In light of this famine, Elimelech looks at the situation. The house of bread has no provisions for them. There's no wheat or grain for them to eat. He has a decision to make and a response in the face of this famine. His choice? To journey or sojourn to Moab. Many commentators understand this to mean for a short while. His hopeful intention was not to be there for life. 
This was not unlike the sojourn, if you remember with Israel's history of Abraham going and sojourning, or Jacob going to Egypt to find provision. Yet Elimelech does this seemingly to run from the judgment and the curses when the right response would be to repent and trust in the promises of God. Deuteronomy 28 says that there's blessings for obedience to the covenant of God and that there are curses for the disobedience of the covenant of God. So had Elimelech, again speculative, if he would have repented and stayed in Israel in Bethlehem, maybe this would have been different, but that's not his decision. He goes from Bethlehem to Moab. Directionally, Moab is directly east. Directly east from Bethlehem. It's approximately about if you set out on foot. I did this in Google Maps. It's about a week. A week's journey. Depending on how fast you wanted to go. That doesn't seem so bad. I mean, for us, we're like, whoa, 55 miles in a week? Nope. For them, that would have been somewhat normal. They were more of a nomadic culture. That doesn't seem so bad. But again, practically, it's doable. But why would this have been such a bad idea? One author puts together the history of Moab in contrast to the history of Israel. Think about this, that God chose from among all of the people Israel to be his people, to be his chosen people in inheritance. And he does so not because there was anything in them that caused him to want to do that, because of his love. That's why he did that. So in contrast to God's covenant with Israel, here's the origin of the Moabites, those who have their origin in Moab. Genesis 19 says that they began from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. That's not a noble beginning of a people. Again, God's calling a people by his name. He set his love on them. Moab. Relationship from a father with his daughter. Wicked. Secondly, when the Israelites were making their exodus, not only did the Moabites not assist them, but they actually came against them. Numbers 22, verse 5 and 6. Behold, this is the king of Moab saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps... I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So they're not only wicked in opposition to the people of God, but they're coming in opposition and calling in other nations to take out the people of God. Thirdly, the Moabite women are known to have seduced the Israelite men, Numbers 25, 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to war with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. This is a uh, other deity. This is a, an idol. This is what they did to put a curse on them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. 
think that's where it stops. There's more of this evil versus um, good and that God has chosen Israel. And here is Moab. I could keep going. They were excluded from the assembly. They were excluded from the promises of God. And then most recently in the time of the judges, the king of Moab oppressed Israel. That's just a small capsule of the difference between Moab and Israel. So going from a promised land is one thing. But going to Moab is preposterous. As one author says, the very idea of going to Moab for refuge and provisions would be ludicrous. This is the setting. This Israelite family flees to Moab during the famine. They've left the promised land. But we've only just begun. The story escalates from here. And verse 3 begins the second scene. The suffering. The story continues as if it was the best of times. Right? As if Jed Clampett had just struck black gold and he was moving to Beverly Hills. But if... As scripture so poignantly does, it shows us that this is not the case by issuing what I'd like to call a divine not-so-fast. It goes on to say in verse 3, But the husband of Naomi died, Elimelech. And I think it's neat that Elimelech, his name means my God is king. But who gives names to children? It's not children. Elimelech wouldn't have chosen that name for himself. His parents would have given him the name Elimelech to say, my God is king. And as if to say that he is no longer trusting in this king, he leaves the promised land to go to Moab. And as scripture says, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. This would have been a deflating blow for this family. Deflating. They've just left the wild west of Judah in the time of the judges, leaving behind them the wrath of the famine, only to await the death of Elimelech. Disaster has struck in Moab. And it's devastating. But it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of the story. It continues to say, in essence, hey, at least Naomi has her two daughters, her, her two sons, and their daughter-in-laws, who, by the way, married Moabite women. I've already given the history of the Moabites, but this shouldn't be so. Again, they would have these other gods that they would worship, and they would cause their husbands to then trust in those other gods. So this is a direct disobedience to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. 
And again, in Deuteronomy 28, 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. This is the curse of disobedience for their family. Not only is Naomi left without a husband, she's left without now her two sons. And in Israelite culture, and even in ancient Near Eastern culture, the man was the, the one. So here she is without her husband, without her two sons, and no hope for her line, for her lineage to continue. Now that doesn't sound that awful. There's people all around us that don't have children, either by choice or by being enabled to have children. But this, as we'll see at the end of Ruth, spoiler alert, the seed of Ruth ends up giving birth to the father of David. And we trace the line of David all the way to Jesus. So if this line is separated here, no Jesus. God is showing that he is sovereign even in the midst of lawlessness without Israel having a king and even in the midst of Moab. That he chooses Ruth, who is a Moabite, to bring forward this line. You know, I always hate the TV shows that end with to be continued. But I'm thankful that this story has a to be continued. Because if we were left hanging with but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband, the end. There would be no hope. There would be no hope in this story, and there would be no hope in that the Messiah would not have come. But we are not left hopeless, even in the midst of a hopeless story, that God is using his sovereign means to bring hope through unordinary means. So what does this text teach us about God? It teaches us that suffering is very real. But where will we turn in the midst of suffering? Do we turn to, you know, maybe if it's if suffering is, we conclude a awkward conversation with somebody, maybe we turn to our phone. Or if suffering is having to do too much hard work, maybe we turn to laziness. What I would say, in the midst of suffering, there is no other place to turn to than to turn to and find refuge in God. We'll see in this next set of verses 6 through 22 next Sunday, we'll see Naomi's response. We'll see Naomi's response. So how will we respond in the midst of suffering? I pray that we would seek God, who is, like I said, for those who have trusted in Christ, He is turning all things for their good. Secondly, it teaches us that in the midst of losing everything, the story isn't over yet. I'm so thankful that this story doesn't end at Ruth 1, verse 5. 
So what will the book of Ruth teach us? First, it will teach us that God is sovereignly working over all things. We'll see the language of people turning kind of coincidentally of, have you ever, you know, made those decisions where you're like, I don't really know why I did that. Oh, well. There's some points in the text where there's questions of why did, why did they do that? We can point to the God who is sovereignly ruling over all things. Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So God is sovereignly working in all things. And secondly, God is redeeming for himself those from among every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He is doing so through his son, the offspring of David, Jesus Christ. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 says it this way. This is giving a glimpse into the eternal things that await in heaven. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. So where do you turn in times of trouble or in suffering? Don't turn to Moab. Turn to God. He is our refuge and strength, and under his wings we will find refuge and hope. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have found refuge in Christ. God, you have not left us to our own devices, but you have provided a way for us to escape judgment and wrath and to be found righteous in Christ. And we pray that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of turmoil of life, that we would not turn to earthly things, that we would not turn to sinful things, but God, that we would turn to you. God, knowing that your promises are true, that you are sovereignly working all things for our good to those who love you. So we ask that we would love you. God, seek to do your will all the days of our life. This is Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.